You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Weethy. I'm joined today by Paul Hodges, the founder of New Normal Consulting and editor-at-large of The PH Report. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Max. All right. So you've been on Real Vision many times before. I'm sure some viewers are, are quite familiar with your perspective on the world, but you do bring a unique outlook on, on understanding what's happening in the global economy and financial markets. Um, you have some you know, your, your, the title of your firm, you know, the new normal, really uh, speaks a lot to you know how you are viewing the world, and I think you have a chart that you start out with in your PH report, which I think is the best place for us to start here today. So I want to pull up this chart that is your major trend shifts that you think are are happening right now. And if you could just explain to us what each of these key paradigm shifts are, the stages and development they're in, and how investors need to be considering these uh, to really think about what's happening moving forward. Right. Thank you, Max. Yes. So just that's a, a bit of background um, to put put them in context. What, what we what we did uh, around sort of April or May uh, last year was uh, it was in fact the deputy mayor of Milan uh, who came up with a word talking about what was happening in the automotive industry in Milan and and he said there are things that we thought would be happening in 2030 which are actually happening now and uh, and that was really the clue that the you know you you go along. And life seems to be pretty much as usual, a bit of change here, a bit of there. And then suddenly you hit a tipping point and, and the world changes, not quite overnight, but very quickly indeed. And so as we thought about that sort of in the first half of last year since then, what we said was there's five key paradigm shifts happening here. First one is in, in demand patterns. And you know, I just put up the sub industries there: travel, leisure, construction, real estate. Major change. You know, I, I've been on a plane once in the last uh, nine months. I, I, there have been times in my life where I travelled with a passport in my in my ja jacket pocket because I was travelling so much. I probably travelled on average on a plane at least once once a fortnight, if not once a week. So that's all changed. You look at restaurants which have been open and shut. I mean, here in Europe, most most of the leisure industry is shut down. Uh, I think there were at Gatwick, which is the third largest London uh, airport, was uh, there, there were 60 flights uh, the other day, uh, normally hundreds. Uh, so they're really massive change. And who's, who's working in offices these days? Uh, you know, what's that doing to the real estate market? So that's that's one very obvious area. Then there's reshoring. And we've got another one of these examples going on at the moment, where uh, you look at the, uh, the semiconductor industry. You know, we had problems a year ago with getting pharma raw materials out of China and India because of uh, export restrictions and travel restrictions and so on. And now here we are again with a worldwide shortage in semiconductors and car firms saying, we're, not, you know, we're going to have to cut back. Toyota in the States, various others have all cut back production because they can't get hold of these uh, uh, the, the, these vital components, and you know we we're talking about just in time in the past, and now what we're talking about is just too late. They're just not coming. So um, then you've got energy abundance. So you've got and Texas is quite a good example of this. As you start to increase the amount of renewables, so you also have to increase the amount of backup supply. Because it's pretty obvious that if you get cold weather, you don't get a lot of sunshine and you just power solar, and you don't get a lot of wind to power wind. So if you want to have renewables because you're you're keen on on climate change, doing something like climate change, you have to have backup. And what that means is that at some periods you have expensive uh, energy, but at some periods you you have negative uh, ne negative priced energy, because you've got wind and solar are running, all the rest are around, and you can virtually give it away. So uh, that's a really big change. Then the circular economy, uh, you know, we're seeing enormous pressure today on recycling of plastics. 
uh, talked to the big brand owners, P&G, Unilever, Danone, uh, all these people. Uh, you see, they're all saying the consumer wants recycled plastic. Now, what does that do to established uh, plastics manufacturing from virgin oil, virgin gas? Doesn't do a lot for it. So you're moving to a new business model there. And I'm sure that's going to really push forward because we've got COP26, the climate change conference coming up at the end of the year uh, in Glasgow in Scotland. And you can already see that global world is you. You've got Biden in the White House, you've got the European Commission and European Union here and China all pushing to go faster here. So that is going to be a big thing. And then, of course, if you've got reshoring going on, if you're moving to the circular economy, well, you're not going to carry on using the same old rubbish manufacturing technologies that you used to use in the past. You've got digital, you've got continuous, you've got biotech-enabled technologies, which are, as it says, safer, greener, faster, and cheaper. Yeah, there's, there's inertia, and that really is the final point. You've got, in all these things, what happens is you have inertia, and people say, yeah, I understand what you're talking about, but really, on the other hand, it's so on. And then something happens, and that something was the pandemic. And at that point, you hit a tipping point and you start to go up the S-curve so that you're going along like this. You know, the incumbents say, told you nothing would ever happen. And then, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Well, you're joking. And you know, change, we know that change comes and change is underway. We think these are five uh, key areas. Other people, you know, uh, viewers will, will have their own ideas as well. And, you know, we're probably all right. Yeah. Well, one of the, the industries that you track to monitor these sorts of trends is is obviously the chemical industry. Uh, fits very well with the title of the pH report. Um, there's this chart you have of the the capacity utilization, which actually prior to the the change to new normal, you were using to show the peak in demand that that we were never going to go back to this to this demand constantly growing uh, paradigm that existed for for really much of your career. Now we've seen some interesting things, which have come up probably surprisingly to you where we've we've really popped right back up in terms of capacity utilization. So how are you making sense of this chart in light of what you previously thought that we wouldn't be coming back up to levels like this before? Well we've we've got I mean this this is this is I think one of the single most fascinating charts that we've had for some time because yeah we we never mess around. Uh, with this chart, it's the data that comes from the American Chemistry Council, and that's it. You know, we don't try and say, "Oh, yes, but this or whatever." But what you saw in December, and the data starts. We have data going back to 1987, so we've got quite a lot of data here. We've got 30, 30, 30 odd years of data. We've never had as big a rise in December as we had in December last year. And so you ask yourself, what happened? Because normally in December, you know, companies are getting ready for Christmas and, and the holidays. They've got tax reasons. They've got working capital. Investors are monitoring their end-year working capital and so on. So you, you always, and I say always, see at best a flattening or uh, uh, you know, a slight downturn. So we, we've seen the single largest increase in capacity utilization we have ever seen in December. So we go around and we ask our friends in the industry, what's happening here? And the answer is buyers. And remember, buyers, you know, buyers lose their bonuses if they pay too much. They lose their jobs if, if their plants run out of product. So losing your, running out of product is pretty serious. And what we're seeing is because of all the supply hiccups around the world, not just semiconductors, I mean, for example, Containers, a container that you could get, would, would, you could bring from Shanghai to the West Coast for fifteen hundred dollars uh, four or five months ago, was costing eight thousand dollars. Right? And buyers are absolutely nervous about supply. So you know, you come along to me and say you've got some product. I say, thanks, Max, I'll take it. Anyway, Anybody who comes along and you're placing multiple orders in order to try and ensure that you get at least one of them delivered. So, uh, you know, and I, th I think this is part of the of the strange mentality that we've got here because it's, it's, it's very clear if you if you look at what's happening in Europe, for example, which is you know, a very large market, it's all in lockdown. And the UK has just announced this, you know, a, a sort of a maybe a road, a tentative roadmap. 
uh, which says that maybe if we're lucky, we go back to something like normal by the end of the end of the first half of the year, by June. Right. So we, we won't be able to go to pubs or anything like that until until June uh, or whatever. You know, maybe you know, schools hopefully will reopen in a couple of weeks. You look at around the states, you see, you know, similar kind of patterns going on. And you see in China that domestic consumption is relatively low. It was down eight uh, percent last last year. It, you know, China's been doing an export boom. So China's been exporting. There hasn't been anything going back. So the containers are stuck. Um, in, um, in in Europe uh, and the states, and and so what you're what you've got is this concept of apparent demand, and you know I'd be delighted to prove be proved wrong. I'd be delighted to think that we're moving off on a real new boom, but I'm absolutely certain we're not. Okay, yeah, we actually got a question about that that I think is relevant here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, you know, so Lily wants to know if, if you, what your thoughts are on the inflation story. She says, I believe you're more in the deflation camp, but perhaps his views have changed or he may be, it may be a timing view where inflation in the short term due to supply chain disruptions, fiscal vaccines, but to deflation longer term. If you could discuss the timing of things and whether you do even see these price rises as being correctly categorized as inflation, or is this purely a one-off scenario? I think that uh, it's it's a very good question. I'll try and answer it really in in, in two parts. So we are fundamentally, uh, as Lily says, in a position of being in favor of deflation for the very simple reason that the majority of population increase in the states, in Europe, and in China over the next ten years is in the fifty-five plus uh, cohort. People aged fifty-five plus. Uh, like myself, we're wonderful people, but we are a replacement economy. We're not going out like Umax and having babies and you know needing to buy things for the first time. We, we you know, when something goes wrong, when our you know, if, if our sofa collapses, then we have to buy another one. But we don't, in principle, we're not buying our first one. So, so we've got a lot of of supply available to us because of globalization, but we don't actually, we're not going to see all that. So. Longer term, you know, if you look at the trend over the last 20 or 30 years, there's a trend, trend lines going very clearly down. But within those trend lines, of course, you get you get bumps. Uh, and you know, we had a, a pretty bad downturn, you know, about this time last year, uh, for, th- for three months. That obviously, I mean, you know, when you've got WTI, uh, crude oil going to a negative price, that's that's quite significant uh, in terms of all the things that grew down. So even if you don't have uh, an increase in, uh, in, in, in pricing, uh, you know, you, if you just had a kind of sort of 30 or $40 crude oil, that would be an enormous inflation, temporary inflation, compared to where you were in March and April last year of, of my, minus 40 at the, at the bottom. So I, I think that you see these swings and roundabouts, which we've seen for 20 or 30 years. And uh, you know, one, of the, this, one of the reasons why we really like the, uh, the chemical industry is that you can look at a chart like this of major regions, and you can see the major sectors. And you can see that actually you know, all of the major sectors are now doing pretty well. You're up you know, 5 or 6% as a minimum. And you're up to eight or nine in plastics. We know why, obviously, because people are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're buying uh, online and they're worried about health risks and so on. So they want individual packaging. You know? And so, so you know, there's some logic uh, going on there. They're you know, living, working from home a lot, so they're trying to you know, make their make their homes better, uh, more comfortable. So obviously, one of the one of the things you do is is is, is paint it. And, and use coatings and so on, things like that. So you you, know, you can see very reason, real reasons why this should be happening. What's interesting, of course, is as I was saying, if you look at China, what you see is China is up twelve percent over last year. Now, obviously, this that's that recovery because China was locked down uh, a year ago, but it's also because it's had an export-led recovery, and it's banged out all of this stuff around the world because its factories came back three months before anybody else's did. So it's pushed all this stuff out. So it's taken, you know, I've seen some estimates, uh, you know, it's early stage estimates, it's taken, it's taken one, one and a half percent of global GDP through its export 
uh, focus. Now that's obviously unsustainable as other regions come back. So my guess is that sometime around the mid-year, we'll start to see inflation coming back down again. But I fully expect, given what happened in March and April last year, that inflation, as I say, even if demand was was just at a sort of a normal level and wasn't being boosted by supply shortages, uh, I would expect to see some inflation at the moment. Okay. So I actually want to skip ahead a little bit because you opened up the door to talking about oil. Um, you make an interesting case for what has driven the price of oil recently, really not being this demand story that many people are focusing on, but that it's actually sort of the financialization of the sector. So I want to bring up this chart here of the uh, world oil output versus uh, futures. Um, mm. so so we got a question from from Jin, which I think is, is very relevant here. He says, are you surprised at oil prices since last March and how much it has recovered? Where do you see oil prices at the end of the year? And I'm just going to expand that to, to more of a general perspective on, on oil markets. Yeah, well, um, let's start by saying I have no great um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, antipathy to futures markets. Uh, in fact, when I was working in, uh, in, in Houston, in Texas, in the mid-'80s, uh, I was working for a company called ICI, which is a big oil player, and I was actually one of those who was helping to set up the futures market and get contracts organized and getting companies like my own to participate. Because if, if you're in the oil and uh, chemical business, um, you know, you're, you're completely locked into whatever is happening in the oil and gas markets. And if you're all talking to each other, you've all got the same view. And you need somebody, you know, we used to talk about the New York and Belgian dentists coming in, you know, wealthy individuals who fancied a punt and they could make money at our expense. But on the other hand, that what they did was they took liquidity instead of just being us, they, they doubled the amount of liquidity. So we could always hedge when we wanted to. And that was fine. You know, that contract, uh, you know, worked as it was supposed to do for 20 years. We're showing we have the data from 96, but it was more or less the same uh, going back to, to 85, 86 when the contract started. And then in 05, you got the, the first move up of the hedge funds coming in. Then they got a bit beaten down, and then they discovered this new thing of paired trading. And, and like all things, it's got some semblance of, of, of logic to it. It is undeniably true that if the dollar is weak, then people outside the states can afford to buy more oil and the other way around. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if prices are, if, if, the, uh, if the dollar is weak, that people will buy more oil. However, if you're a hedge fund and if you're playing on quants, then what you do is you say, we'll just we'll program the machine to operate on that basis. And, and what you then have is the physical market of supply and demand, which was already by 2010 or so in danger of being swamped. You know, we saw it. You know, crude went from $146 in, in June 2008, and it was, it was down at 30 by the end of the year. You know, the hedge funds had taken it completely to a ridiculous level, right? And then they did it again. And of course, Every time you build up these circumstances, so you add another layer to the onion. And the other layer that happened with OPEC coming out of the, uh, the, the last downturn in uh, 2014, 2015, was that they, got, they, 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 they opened up a dialogue with the hedge funds. And you know, not, not illegal, I mean, it was, uh, we're in, the, in our report for clients, you know, we actually quote, uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, which which broke the story uh, publicly, as it were. We knew it was happening, obviously, but there it was in print, so we can now actually talk about it. And you know, there were you know, oil market analysts introducing a hundred of the largest hedge funds to OPEC, and OPEC saying, "Well, this is what we're going to do," and the hedge funds saying, "Well, this looks like easy money, doesn't it? Let's go and, and buy them." And you know, and, and so. In, what's very interesting, in the whole period since 2009, we have never once had a genuine supply shortage. You know, we've seen the price go up from minus 40. Okay, that's 
big spectrum, but we've got, say we've gone up, we've gone up 25 to 65 over the past year. Not a single supply shortage anywhere in the world. Now, I used to be an oil trader. I used to work for uh, a chemicals company. You only ever used to see spikes in the oil price, a doubling or more, if you had genuine shortages. That's not happening today. We're simply at the mercy of financial speculation. And what is worse about it, and the bit that does get me, I mean, Michael Lewis uh, wrote, wrote about this in Flash Boys, obviously, but the bit that gets me is, and we saw it today, uh, you know, and I don't, you know, don't mind giving you, I mean, you know, Goldman published a story that says the oil price is going to go up 10, you know, faster and so on. It doesn't matter whether Goldman are right or wrong. All the quants see the headline, buy, 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 buy. And there it is. It's suddenly, you know, it was down 20, 30 cents at the beginning of the day. And it was last time I looked, it was up a dollar and a half. Nothing had changed. Goldman made a forecast. Oh, really? Yeah, I've seen that before. Goldman were bullish. Well, show me a time when Goldman aren't bullish. That's how they make their money, you know? So why is the market reacting to this? The market is not you know, reacting to real events. The market is reacting to, uh, to you know, what financial players are doing. Where do I think this ends? I'm old enough to think still that in the end, supply and demand will matter. So I'm going to, you know, I'm quite happy uh, to uh, to put twenty five or thirty dollars down as the price for the end of the year, uh, because what we've now got, and, and OPEC, I think is is starting to wake up to this, uh, and I think there's, you know, what we're going to see in the second quarter is some big rows in the uh, in, in in OPEC plus, because what have you got? On the one hand, you've got prices high enough to allow U.S. shale back in the game. And we've already more than doubled the number of drilling rigs since August, and more is coming out. And of course, all the producers say, well, of course, this time round, we're going to be very responsible. Hello? When have you ever seen a shale oil producer being responsible? They make as much money as they can when they can. Perfectly reasonable strategy. So, you know, so shale is going, is going to produce as much as it can, as quickly as it can, and it will hedge. I think people have learned their lesson from the last collapse, and they will hedge. So even when the market goes down, they'll carry on producing. Secondly, we've got COP26, the climate change conference coming up. So we've got enormous pressure now for more renewables to be used. And the higher the oil price, the more you hasten the, the tra transition, the paradigm shift from fossil fuels to renewables. Because you look at the pricing and you say, well, actually, you know, for example, in uh, you know, here in Portugal, uh, last summer, Portugal bought um, solar power at 13 euros 18 a megawatt hour. Uh, you know, so, you know, why, why, why would you be paying today's prices for oil when you know that you've got a built-in uh, margin there? So that's what will happen. And then, of course, the third one is that Saudi were relying on Trump and Trump keeping aligned with the uh, with the Texas oil industry because he wanted to, to, to get the Texas and Louisiana and so on boats uh, in the election. Nothing particularly clever or uh, needing a lot of detective work to work that one out. But of course, Trump isn't there anymore. Biden, Biden, yeah, he has a bit of some, some oil boats up in Pennsylvania, but by and large, uh, he's fairly neutral on it. And he's much more concerned about jobs. And jobs in the uh, in, in in the new economy, the new normal economy. Uh, it, that's what that's his core focus. And of course, and also he wants to do get the Iran deal back because the dangers of not having an Iran deal for the world world peace are incredible. So I think we're going to start to see much more Iranian oil coming onto the market. We're going to see many more disputes within OPEC plus because Russia's hardly cut back. Russia doesn't believe in cutting back. You know, it's, you know, we've seen this for 30 years. You know, they, 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 they announce all sorts of things. But then you get to the numbers, well, you know, it was the wrong kind of snow in Siberia, and we really had to, and it's very unfortunate, and we wish we hadn't, but there you go. That's the way of it, sort of thing. So you've got the Russians doing their own thing there. Uh, you've got the Iranians who are, you know, haven't got a quota, but, you know, obviously very important players. Uh, you've got Iraq. 
needing the cash quite desperately. Uh, and you've got other players around Nigeria. Uh, Venezuela may well come back. Venezuela could be a very big provider. It's not being cut out. You know, if, 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 we, if we start to see Venezuelan oil coming back, you could see you know, a million barrels. So, so there's a lot of oil around. There aren't any shortages. There haven't been any shortages. And at some moment, my personal view or our, our personal house view uh, is that the supply demand will suddenly become blindingly obvious to everyone. And so why on earth are prices this high? By which time, I'm sure that our friends in the hedge funds will have sold short. <laughs> so the so question, the though, question is, though, is how high can how it go? High can go? Between, between, between the time that... I'm sorry, I'm just getting a little echo there. Let me back up from my mic a little bit. Um, so between now and your $25, $30 price target, you know, Nick uh, says he's, he's long right now. Um, and he, he sees, you know, why not $100 a barrel this summer? Do you think that's possible that we could, that this could continue uh, much further than you would have expected before we actually see this realization of the supply and demand dynamics? Well, I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you've chosen that particular chart, Max, uh, because um, what we've been saying for a while to our clients, as you know, uh, is that when you get trade, te technical trading like this, which has nothing to do with supply and demand, you might as well look on the Fibonacci uh, retracement levels. And so there's our view of the Fibonacci uh, retracement level going back uh, so, you know, since uh, the last fall. So, yeah, we, we think it could go up to, to somewhere near 70. Uh, we hit the 61 10 days ago. You hit the 50. Uh, I, I, would, I would be surprised if we go, if we, if we go much, much higher. I mean, we can do it for a day or two. But if, if you do it stably, uh, because by you know, quite a long time, if you look at that, those green uh, uh, candlestick charts there, uh, you know, we've been going up very, very steadily at, you know, not not quite a vertical level, but pretty close uh, to a vertical level. So uh, th that is usually a sign that uh, you, you come to an unhappy end. So, you know, if somebody wanted to say, oh, we'll get to, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with, with, with Goldman that it could get to 75, but Goldman is saying it because, you know, they, they want it to happen. And I'm saying, well, you know, it will only go up there because it's going to come down afterwards. Which I don't think is a view that Goldman share. Yeah. So um, I guess he also comments about a supply squeeze. I'm sure that's related to uh, the shutdowns that happened down in Texas because of the inclement weather. How do you think about that? You know, we do have um, some some supply coming offline at least in Texas because of the inclement weather. Is that going to affect your your outlook? Well, I mean, we, we, we've had. I mean, the the the, the weather is a, is a double edged sword. From a fossil fuel position, because um, yeah, when I when I was living in in Houston in the eighties, of course, you used to get hurricanes, you used to get the odd light dusting of snow and so on, and all that would come through and so on. But it never lasted particularly. You know, now we've had the the, the big hurricanes um, three years ago, four years ago, and now we have the snow, and that really does start. You know, even the most climate skeptic starts to say, you know, there might be something in this because we haven't seen this before. So that tends to destabilize fossil fuel demand. And you look at, I mean, you know, nobody knows the answer, but BP, who are a pretty large oil company, said, we think we saw peak oil demand last year. Uh, we know in the States that 68% of oil demand is in transportation. And you can see GM saying, we're not going to be selling uh, fossil fuel-based cars past 2035. So you, know, you can argue that what the uh, you know in, in the medium to longer term, what this is doing is encouraging and speeding up the demise of gasoline and diesel demand, and therefore, uh, you know, in the largest uh, user uh, user of, of, of oil, uh, you're going to see a decline. In the short term, one has to remember that we see this every year. We always have shutdowns due to hurricanes sometime between August and. Uh, at the end of September, sometimes several. And the oil companies are very experienced at shutting things down and getting them back up again. Now, you can say, OK, this isn't wind, this is cold, and so on. And some of those plants will will, will, will take longer to restart. But the temperatures already come back. You know, you don't get, you know, today, you know even today, you don't you don't get snow continuing in, in, in Texas for, for very long, you know, a few days at most. 
So it's, the temperatures are coming back. There's a lot of money at stake to get this right. Uh, you don't have to get people out on the drilling rigs or anything else. So I think that we'll be coming back pretty quickly. But of course, there is the other side to this. We don't know the answer to this yet. What has happened to demand? You know, I, I talk to a lot of our clients who are you know, not necessarily in the in the oil industry up in the northeast, uh, for example, and you can see that there's much, you know, demand is much lower. People are locked down, and at the same time, uh, their actual levels of demand uh, is reducing quite, quite, quite a lot. So, I wouldn't be surprised that yes, the, the big impact short term was all these plants going offline. But in a way, once you've lost it, you lost it. You start again. And you've got it there. Demand, however, I suspect will take a bit longer to come back. So you know, this, this is these are these are interesting times, uh, if you like. Uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be putting a lot of money on the oil markets at this stage to go to 100 unless you know, something really much bigger took place. Okay. Well, I think this this brings us nicely to one of the other major trend shifts that you're talking about, which is the, the greening of the economy and fits back in with your build back better. Um, argument. So we have um, a chart here that just let, let's just start out more broadly before we get into autos specifically. Um, but but we have a chart here of just the the ESG growth in financial markets. Um, I, I think specifically this looks at new and repurposed funds and then uh, European fund flows over the past few years. So this is you talk about the big conference that we have coming up. Financial markets are referencing it. The, the companies themselves, businesses, are, are starting to take note. It, it is clearly a mega trend. How are you viewing it? Well, we, I mean, I think we've we've been highlighting this uh, for for a while, and it, the you know people like Microsoft uh, began to say a year ago, you know, by twenty fifty, we're going to have put you know, taken taken out of our system all the all the carbon. Uh, that we've contributed to the to the economy, sort of stage one, stage two, and stage three, which includes travel rather than just the direct uh, impact. And then you've got uh, people like BlackRock, uh, you know, writing to uh, to their CEOs saying, and this is a very interesting point with the, you know, the letters that they're writing now uh, to say we're actually going to set up ETFs, so passive ETFs. With an ESG bias again, you know, on fossil fuels. So you may buy instead of just buying a, an S and P ETF to reflect the S and P, you may well have a mandate from a pension fund to say we want you to invest in an ETF that doesn't support fossil fuels, and that's what's now coming. So what I think you're going to see is a lot of pain for fossil fuel manufacturers, for fossil fuel producers. One of the things that I think is very interesting at the moment is the difference between Europe and the States. And I think this is down to Trump, that in Europe, it's been pretty clear to the oil companies, you know, whether it's Shell, whether it's BP, whether it's Total, whether it's one, that the future is not going to be around fossil fuels. You may disagree about whether you've got 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is, but, you know, in terms of an oil industry outlook, you know, 10 or 20 years is just round the corner. You know, so you know they're alive to it. In the states, I think that people allowed themselves to believe for a while. You know, maybe you know, maybe this could carry on longer. Maybe it will be all right. And so I think that the shock in the states is going to be greater. And you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a great admirer of the states. And one of the things that I've always noticed about the states is that nothing is happening and nothing is happening. Let's go and talk to a few people and something, but nothing's happening. But wait a minute. I don't see that coming. And I think that's where we're going to be in six months' time on oil and gas. I think that the major US oil companies, seeing the way the wind blows with Biden, with climate change, with COP26, why are you going to start banging your head against a brick wall in this? Why wouldn't you? want to get into a growth market for the future. And there are lots of growth markets around this. It doesn't just have to be renewables. So um, I, th I think you've got investors saying to company managements, if you carry on doing that, we're not going to put much money into you. So your share bonuses and so on, they're going to go down. Is that what you want? Fine. 
Okay? Right? At, at the same time, their customers are saying, we don't want your product anymore. So I, I, I think that we're, you know, we've already seen that happen in Europe. Uh, you won't find any CEO, really, in uh, Europe, a major European oil company who believes they've got a future in fossil fuels beyond 20 or 25 years. And I think we're going to get to that position in the States as well fairly quickly this year. Yeah, well, the the oil companies are quickly becoming energy companies. You can hear that in their in their rhetoric. But you know, pulling up this chart again, it's interesting. You see the number of funds is growing rather steadily, but it's the 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 flows that is really yeah. gone parabolic, which I think is extremely interesting. Um, and that's in billions of euros. And I mean, it just really takes off in 2019 and last year, uh, just a just an absolute record year. Um, and and that's that's the incentive that you're talking about that that there is not only is it a potential growth industry but the capital is there and the capital is being driven that way. Um, yeah. It just strikes me as rather unlikely that American oil companies wouldn't jump on that trend as well. I mean, the, 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 the other bit you know just to say about that is what what, what you see is that the the passive obviously led but the active is now getting pretty big as well. <laughs> Yes, yeah, the active is is huge there. Uh, that was actually a, a big surprise to me. Um, but naturally, another industry that dovetails very nicely into this discussion is autos. So as much as uh, we're going to be discussing um, both the, the demand side from COVID and how that has shaped demand, let's start though with EVs and how this the same trend that we're talking about in the oil and gas or energy sector is also taking place in autos. Well, I, th I think the, the, the issue with electric vehicles, you know, when somebody comes to write the history of it, uh, will, will be fascinating because uh, it really began uh, with, with two, two developments. Uh, one was in China around pollution and air pollution. And uh, you, know, you, you and I remember, Max, that you know, the, the American embassy uh, was in Beijing was the only uh, the only public body that was publishing air pollution numbers in Beijing, and they were you know, they were holding that uh, that number up, and it was it was you know well beyond anything that WHO was recommending in terms of health and so on. Actually, do, do we want to go to the to the, that, that that's the, the smaller markets? Um, I, I'm just I, I'm just filtering. The charts aren't actually up on screen yet. I was just looking to see whether we had any specifically for EVs. We'll get to the okay. to the demand yeah, stuff. Right, okay. I Fine, just want right. to talk more broadly. Okay, right. So, um, so the, uh, the, the the position on um, so you have China moving forward because of air pollution. You know, what's the point of having a wealthier population if you can't breathe the air, drink the water, or eat the food? You know, that, that, that is and was the big challenge. So you've got to clean up the economy. You can't just be belching out fumes all the time. And then you get to Europe. And in Europe, what you see is that the, uh, the, the Dieselgate saga was the tipping point because you had VW and others who were cheating on diesel emissions. And they were cheating on this for years. And, you know, you could argue about whether regulators knew or not, it doesn't really matter, but they got found out. And there was this crisis two-day board meeting uh, in Wolfsburg, VW's headquarters, three or four years ago, where they basically faced the end of their business. And, you know, after recognizing the shock, they then said, well, what else can we do? And the answer was, there's only one thing we can do, which is electric vehicles. And, and the ironic thing was that the European Commission had already brought in CO2 levels for cars, and they were due to come in last year. And the industry wasn't bothered about this, because yes, you get high uh, CO2 levels from gasoline, but from diesel, they're relatively low. And given the 50% 55% of the market was diesel, that meant we're laughing. Oh, you mean we're not going to be able to sell diesel anymore? I mean, the diesel over four years, diesel market share has gone from 55% of the market to 25%. Oh, as they say in Houston, oh, Higgins, you know, what happens next? And so they had to bring in electric vehicles. They had to do it very fast. And you know, 
if you're a large manufacturer and you throw money at it, then because you were you were you were saving yourself potentially you know hundreds of millions of, of euros here, uh, so you didn't really mind if you were giving away the cars because you might as well give away a car and build some market share than just hand it over to the government. Uh, you know anybody can see that logic, um, and so they went like mad uh, at this, and so suddenly you now got a major market going, and Europe became last year because of the new CO2 levels, became the largest market in, in the world um, for electric vehicles. China, of course, is also coming up there too. And, and what you now see is that VW are spending, you know, they've increased the number of cars they're going to produce, the models they're going to do it, and they're going to be spending you know, sort of, you know, tens, of, tens of, of billions of euros now on putting out 25 or so different models within the next three to four years. And what you see is poor old Tesla, uh, you know, is back down with the also rans now because the big boys, VW, uh, you know, uh, Renault, and so on, are up there now getting the market share that you would expect. VW and Renault between them, almost half of the market uh, in, elect in electric electric vehicles. So, and, and that will grow very fast. And and what you've also got, of course, is countries mandating the end of diesel and gasoline cars. So the UK was mandating the end of that in 2035. They're now mandating the end of it in 2030. Well, you know, Tokyo's done the same, a number of other countries. I'm pretty sure that we'll see other countries doing that in the run-up to COP26. We saw GM announcing last week, I think it was, that they won't be selling diesel or gasoline cars past 2035. I'm pretty sure Mary Barra will bring that date forward uh, in due course as well. And, and people say, well, yeah, okay, that's 2030, but that gives us a few years. Well, actually, no, because when you go to buy a car, and whether you're a private buyer or a fleet buyer, one of the things you look at is what's the resale value going to be? So if I buy a new gasoline or diesel car today, and I go to resell it in 26, 26 or 27, usual kind of five years or something, what's it going to be worth? Well, if you look at what's happened to the resale market for diesel, not a lot is the answer. So, uh, you know, I, I think that the, 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 uh, the buyer uh, will vote with their pocketbook on this. And the important thing is that battery costs have now come down to around the 100 bucks a kilowatt hour. So at the executive car level, the $35,000, $30,000 level, they're now competitive with, uh, with, with, uh, with, with gasoline and diesel. And you've got to remember that with electric vehicles, you don't have very much maintenance because there aren't that many moving parts. You know, you have 2,000 moving parts in a, in a in, in, uh, internal combustion engine car, uh, you have about 200 in an electric vehicle. So it's much simpler, it's much easier, you don't have so much maintenance and so on. You have to do the brakes and things like that, but you don't have to do oil changes or anything because you don't, you don't have any oil. Um, simple things like that. So, uh, you know, it, so it becomes much cheaper. And within a couple of years, and, you know, I'm using Bloomberg uh, uh, numbers, but you know, most people are around the same, but the battery costs will be cheaper for most cars. And what's particularly interesting, I thought about what both GM and Ford were saying in, in their recent uh, quarterly updates, was that they expected the, uh, the, the the van market to go very quickly. Because if you're in the delivery market, you know what mileage your cars, your vans do. You know what it's like. And they're back in the depot at night, so you can recharge them. So you look at the cost. You know, if 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 you're a, if you're a trucker, if you're a de de delivery fleet owner, you look at the cost of this. And you say, "Well, I'm going to say." I think Ford said it's going to be forty percent cheaper. Well, forty percent gets you to shift. You know, and it's dope. You know, the, the cars the, and the vans and so on work. So I think that you're going to see buyers now starting to take a lead on this and moving it forward quite fast. So this has got, and you know, so what we're seeing is two impacts here. One is that the China stimulus effect has disappeared. Uh, you know, China's sales, as it says there, were, were going up. Really, they, they, they quadrupled, went up by four times uh, between 2007 and 2018. They've now come down quite a lot. Actual level of cars, if you take the other six big markets, 
this the actual level of, of, of car sales last year were exactly the same as they were in 2010. So in other words, there wasn't any growth in the market outside China over the last 10 years. And what we can see is that that, that growth is going to come is going to you know, be, you know, reverse and become become negative now. And that of course has a number of very interesting implications. Because one of the things it does, you know, auto sales, auto production are usually the biggest employer yeah. In, yeah. In, in manufacturing employer. And, you know, in, in Europe, for example, it's around 7% of total, total employment. And that doesn't include all the service stations and so on uh, that you use. It doesn't include the garages where you go to get your checkups and, and oil changes and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of employment is going to start to disappear uh, in this industry over the next three to three to five to ten years, and uh, and so it, this is why, if I was Joe Biden, this is why I would be very very strongly starting to think about how I can create high paying jobs out of climate change, because because you know it's it's too late to hold on to the fossil fuel market. You know, we tried that with Trump. It didn't work. And the world has moved on now. So you either stick your head in the sand and say, oh, well, don't worry. You know, we'll somehow get it back. Or you take the bold step that says, let's create the jobs of the future. And that, I think, is the challenge you know, uniquely, really, uh, it, with China, with Europe, and with the States. All three major markets are moving in the same direction. Okay, Linda, Linda, Linda has a question. She wants to know who's going to be the winner. Is it going to be the Chinese, U.S., or Europe? Is there even going to be a winner in terms of? I, I think that um, we'll have. I, I'm pretty sure that the, the people who, uh, who won't be the winner are Tesla. Uh, you know, t t Tesla are now, are now already being left behind, and as people have said, we said before, you know, the established. Uh, legacy car manufacturers actually know how to manufacture cars. They know how to manufacture them at scale, and they've got the local contacts to make that work. So I think that the the winners will be uh, two sets of people, really. One is in the Western markets. It will be the major companies, VW, Ford, uh, General Motors, Renault, Ren 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 uh, you know, who've all got very, very good EV lineups coming through, performance fine, cost fine, know how to market them, and everything else. I think that what we'll see is that in China, those companies that are active in China will obviously be, you know, it's, it's a trial area, you're launching cars, cars there. China is also now, however, making a big push into the, the Belt and Road markets. You know, in other words, the, the markets where China has local uh, local sway, uh, if you like. Broadly speaking, you've got an aging population in China, and it's surrounded by a lot of young countries. And the stands, for example, going over towards in Asia, towards uh, Iran, going uh, over the uh, uh, up the Gulf into the Middle East and to Africa. So you've got young populations there. And what I think China will do is to build up its sales of lower price, much lower priced cars. You know, you're talking about cars that cost five or $10,000 on average, rather than the average, whatever it is, $38,000 in the States. Uh, so I think that uh, it isn't quite a cheap and cheerful uh, market, but you'll see that kind of division. So China will do pretty well in the lower cost market, and the, the Western producers will do pretty well in the more established developed world markets. So there is one exception, though, that you highlighted in your report to uh, the shift towards EVs, which is less developed markets are are not quite ready to, to make the full shift. And, and you said, I think you highlighted Russia and India as examples mm -hmm. of countries that um, are just not ready to make the full EV shift. For whatever reason, and are are still focusing on uh, gasoline or diesel powered uh, vehicles, and and really focusing on making cheaper cars. So there are some exceptions. It's not truly yes. a global trend yet. But, well, it's uh, what, what what I'd say is that you you know you still have uh, for for example you know for a, lo a long time after leaded gasoline was was phased out in the states, you had exceptions, particularly in the agricultural area. 
And I remember my friends at Sun Oil used to make a killing uh, out of it. I can probably, you know, shouldn't say killing, but you know, they used to make you know, healthy profits uh, out of this because they had a captive market. They were the last player in the game. And, and I think that what you're seeing, you know, if you're a company, you tend to sort of tick on in the market. You know, you're there. Inertia's been there. You know, um, you know, Ford. Um, you know, for example, has, has had the you know, highest selling cars. You know, for some some time uh, in the past in in markets like Brazil and Russia. And uh, so, you know, you, you you tick over. You've got the supply chain and so on. And then you get to the point. Well, are we going to invest to produce the new models? And that's the key, because then the bean counters come along and they say, well, hang on a moment, you know, you're actually selling 20 or 30% less than you were five years ago. Can you show me why you'll be selling even that number in the future? Well, I think it will probably, you know, come on, show me why. And they say, well, you can't justify it. So we're not going to give you the cash. We're going to put all our money where we know we can get a return in Europe and the States and China. So markets like Brazil and, uh, and India and, uh, and, and Russia what, you, what happens is you get left with what nobody else wants to do. So uh, exactly as you say in, in, in Russia, uh, Peugeot, I think it is, you know, are saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to need diesel engines for a while, so let's manufacture them cheaply in Russia. You know? yeah. And so you get that residual market. That's not really where you want to be, but it's better than nothing. Okay, so I want to get to some questions from the audience here before we let you go in a few minutes. Um, Rolf has a question. Are the share price increases of manufacturers for renewable energies, wind, solar, geothermal, etc., in the last year sustainable, or do you think that this recent rise in price is a bit of an overshoot? All these things, you, you know, you, 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 you wander along and you talk about these things for a while and then take any notice at all and you think, oh, maybe I'm wrong, you know. And then it suddenly goes the other direction. I mean, the, uh, the CEO of, of Total uh, said, said, said last week, you know, the prices for renewable businesses to buy are highly inflated. But, I mean, the, the way I look at this uh, is I, I'm a value investor myself and I go back to Ben Graham and uh, you know the father of, of, of value investing and you know Ben had this rule that if you look at a company's likely earnings over the next 10 years then you and it's, you think it's going to be flat then in his mind that deserves a price earnings ratio of 8.5 and every one percent of growth that you thought the company could sustain over that 10 10 years you would add two points. To it. So if you're looking at a PE of 18 and a half, for example, that means that you're expecting the company to grow at 5% a year for the next decade. And so I think it's a very good question. And the, and the way I look at it is let, let's think rather than the addressable market, which I always get a bit nervous about. You know, you could sell an awful lot of apples in China if every, every one of 1.4 billion people decided to buy an apple. It's an addressable market, but it's probably not real. Um, you know, how many uh, EVs are you likely to sell? And, uh, and with renewables, how quickly is that transition going to take place? And what's the price level at which you're going to be selling? Because you've seen some very low levels of price. So I think that uh, from an investment point of view, if you're not in the business and you've got a choice, I would be looking at some of the areas which have tended to sort of fall behind a bit. You know, hydrogen, I think. It's a very interesting area. We don't quite know how it's going to work out yet, so it may not work out. Uh, using ammonia as a carrier for hydrogen could be, I think, quite a big uh, market. But there's not a lot of evidence at the moment to back me up. So, uh, you know, you, if you're prepared to do the work, you you might get yourself comfortable, and there would be an attractive kind of, of operation. Well, Paul, you talked about the uh, more established oil and gas companies realizing that they need to shift their businesses, obviously, and, and they're getting capital to to acquire new new companies. Is there any opportunity in the sort of private to public arbitrage where maybe these private companies, which could get acquired by the, the more traditional folks, are trading at lower multiples because they haven't been driven up by speculators in the market, and thus you're able to buy these more established players, which are being viewed as the old economy, but they're they're in the process of shifting. And they're mm -hmm. going to actually be stepping in, buying these private companies at better valuations and shifting their business. 
So you know, you, you're you're buying value now because it's being mm-hmm. underappreciated, and the growth is, is although it's not there yet, it, it's coming in the future as they shift their businesses. Is that something that you may consider? Yeah, I, 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 I think I think that's a very very good uh, point, Max. I mean, you you can you can make an argument. I mean, let's just take Shell uh, as 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 a, as a case study. Uh, Shell have, have put quite a lot of money in gas, which is probably not a good idea uh, for the medium to long term. Probably regretting that they wouldn't say it publicly, um, but they are moving very much into uh, battery charging and charging. Uh, system made uh, made new investments. I think that we're not we haven't yet got into the the real market of how are we going to operate electric vehicles in China, for example. There's a very interesting business model that Neo, one of the big players, has set up with CATL, which is a really big battery company, where they say, look, we'll take ten thousand dollars off the price of your EV car. And we'll charge you each month, you know, roughly the amount of money that you'd spend on on gasoline, and we'll charge you that for recharging. And don't you worry about the battery or, or what happens when it gets upgraded and changes and so on. We'll manage all that for you. And I I think that battery exchange could become in certain markets a very interesting area because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. To everybody to start setting up their own private uh, high-speed charging, you know. So, uh, and you've got you know you've got millions around the world of service stations uh, with you know prime real estate in the middle of cities and everything else where you want it. So if you could if you could set up a system where you just go in and look, I want the Ford battery, I want it, uh, you know, I want a GM battery, whatever it is. And they just say, right, sit there, sir, have a cup of coffee, sit there, madam, you know, so on. You know, I, I think that could work quite well. So I think that those are the kind of areas where uh, rather than sort of jumping in and saying, oh, we think everything is going to go well, one's got to be able to form a judgment about which are the models that are going to come through. I think for battery, battery exchange, governments have got to get involved. You know, one of the things that happened you know, with, uh, with with mobile phones, with cell phones, is this happened. Government said it's completely mad that everybody, every every manufacturer of cell phones has a different standard. You're all going to use the same standard. We don't want you know a billion charging leads thrown away every year. Um, and so I think the governments might get involved in this, uh, and that would ch- that would be quite a game changer. Okay. Um, David has a question. What do governments do to replace uh, the revenue source with the shift to electric? Very good question. I mean, there's there's all sorts of taxes. That's that's again. <laughs> I don't want to sound a bit like a broken record, but that, that's again. If I was in government and if I was in treasury, I would be saying, you know, if I just let everybody charge at home, I'm going to lose an awful lot of revenue because uh, you know most countries. I mean, I know. Various states in the states don't do this, but most countries make quite a bit of, of, of income out of uh, gasoline taxes, out of uh, registration taxes each year, and so on and so forth. Registration taxes will still be there, but the gasoline taxes won't. Uh, so if you could actually get people into a monthly payment system, you can tax it. And you know that treasuries are there to tax, and you know is the famous phrase. You know, uh, you, you you want to find the tax that uh, you know, enables you to extract the feather from the golden goose with the minimum amount of angst. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I I could see quite a lot. It's, it's a bit it's a different different market altogether. But you know, one of the main reasons why why did we get to taxes on cigarettes? Okay, there are a lot of health campaigners and everything else. One of the reasons was <laughs> Treasury people said, you know, this would be quite good. If we put on a tax, everybody would thank us for it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Even smokers are glad that you tax them because it, you know, it makes them smoke a bit less. Um, so I don't I don't know uh, if I'll, I'll I don't know if I'll concede that point. I have <laughs> a few smokers who 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 don't care, but 
Perhaps. Perhaps there are a few out there who, who have found that they've reduced just because of cost. Get out of here, Max. I'm just stirring the pot a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have two more questions I want to get to before we let you go. So Sarah has a question about silver and lithium supplies for new energy. Uh, what do you think about the, those markets? And I'll, I'll expand that a little bit. If you have any other commodities that you think are of particular importance where uh, there is a supply or demand imbalance. Yeah, well, I think they... Again, uh, you know, we're we're at the at the cusp of some major changes here. Um, you know, we uh, I talked a bit earlier about S curves. You know, and what happens with S curves is you you tend to spend a lot of time trying to work out what the business model is. Nothing much happens, and then suddenly you get it right one morning. And you know, and we've seen this with smartphones. We've seen this, you know, all the way through through history. Uh, you know, everybody has a smartphone within a week, sort of thing. I think the interesting question around lithium and silver is clearly that there's a lot of, of, of demand coming down. And you have to ask yourself, what are we going to do with the lithium and silver that we've already used? You know, at the moment, we have this thing called waste sites, where you know, we, we bung it all in the trash can and we throw it away. And you know the metal leaches out and pollutes the land, the land and so on. It's not very clever and so on. But it's also not very clever because, as with recycling generally, plastics recycling, everything else, you're throwing away a very valuable molecule. And I saw that one of the ex-Tesla people has been raising money for lithium recovery. And it starts to, you know, if, if you're a city and you're rather short of cash, which I think most cities are, one of the things you could start to do is to set up proper recycling centers and start to earn some real money from this because, you know, big cities, so Houston, New York, San Francisco, and so on, you're throwing away hundreds of millions of dollars worth of raw materials. And it would be worth it getting companies to come and invest to pick that up. So I think that she's absolutely right that in the short term, uh, you're going to see pressure on uh, prices there. I'm not a member of Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> I can talk about that. Uh, but uh, I think that, that you know, that, as prices start to move up, as I expect, then what we'll also, that will also do is encourage, as markets normally work, encourage the market to start thinking about more recycling. And recycling you could do relatively quickly. And you know, there's a lot, as I say, there's a lot of money in it for, for cities, a lot of money in for the, for the companies to do it. So I suspect in three to five years that market could be quite well developed. And it, you know, it, it's an area to keep an eye on because once once it starts to happen. If you identify the companies that might do well, you'll be getting in on the ground floor of quite a big market. Yeah, and it could it could potentially upset some of the high price targets people have for those mm. for those metals, assuming that they have to one hundred percent of the demand has to come from mining. Yeah. Um, so, final question is is a bit of a, a a change of direction here. It's from Stephen, who says, "I believe Paul mentioned before that he thought U.S. Treasuries would have one more leg up, and then it would be time to exit." Do you still be believe that to be the case, or is this the time to exit that you uh, that you warned of? Where I like to see uh, the market, you know, we we've had this sort of 30, 40 year uh, downturn, and we've come back to what 1.34, 1.35% for the 10 year now, which is exactly in the middle of the tram lines uh, where we've been. So so I'm not particularly uh, I'm not particularly bothered about that at the moment. I think that we've, uh, in this game, I tend to look at, are we seeing lower lows and lower highs, or are we seeing higher lows and higher highs? It's a very simple, uh, a bare little brain like myself can, uh, can get my head around. And so what I haven't yet seen, and you know, I'm quite happy to admit that I could be completely wrong, but I'll, you know, um, I, I'll give my reasoning. I haven't yet seen people understand the impact of the demographic change that we're going through in the States. You know, whenever people talk about aging populations and everything else, they talk about it from a healthcare point of view. And, you know, I went to a, you know, a, a, a sort of central bank uh, session uh, with, with all the sort of leading economists there. And, and I started to talk about it. One of the very prominent economists, everybody will know, said, oh, no, we're not talking about demographics again. 
I thought, tanned her. And I said, no, actually, what I'd like to do is to talk about demographics for the first time. Demographics has this fantastically negative impact on demand. It's why we're moving from globalization to sustainability. 1950, you had two and a half billion people in the world. Today, you have 7.8 billion. Most of them are smart young people like yourself. Well, that's all they were, the baby boomers. And you know, they created a lot of inflation in the 60s and 70s because they were growing up but not actually producing very much. And then from the 80s and 90s and noughts, they were in, the, in the, 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 the labor market, they were producing lots of stuff, they were settling down, they were having families, they were buying lots of stuff. It was a golden era of constant growth. And now the crucial thing is that instead of you know, getting the gold watch at 65, having a couple of years on the golf course and pegging out, they're now there for another 15 years. I mean, you know, I know life expectancy came down last year for a year, but I mean, that's, you know, I don't think that's a long-term trend. Uh, that's specific circumstances which we know about. So, you know, the, the trend is still upwards for, for life expectancy. And so what you've now got is a set of people, and this is where the majority of population growth in the state is taking place. How can you have inflation? So I think that once we get, once that story finally becomes current uh, and consensus, and people don't turn around to me and say, oh, God, we already know that, and they, they actually do know it, uh, then I think that's the end. But I, you know, I, I think these are positions that you're trading out of, and you know, you're getting close to the point, frankly, where I would start to trade back in again. Okay, so deflationary impulse still to come, meaning bonds trade higher, yields lower, uh, as people realize the growth that they're pricing into equities is, is perhaps uh, not within reach. Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the equity bond uh, dichotomy is, is very interesting because if, if, you know, if I'm wrong and if inflation really is taking off, then that's going to have a massive effect on, on bond yields and that's going to collapse the stock market. Yep. It always has, always will. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be praying for inflation uh, if I was an equity market bull. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much. We've touched on a lot of great topics. And thank mm. you all to the audience for tuning in and for the great questions. Hopefully, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll have you back again soon. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks very much, Max. And thanks for all the questions. Really good discussion, as always. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.